Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like what you hear, please press subscribe. And also, if you could leave a review and rate this podcast, that would be amazing. Um, Thank you to the many of you who have already done that. It means so much to me, and I read every comment. So please review, rate, subscribe, and uh, tell your friends about this podcast. Thank you. Today's episode has been sponsored by Jiggy Puzzles, a female-founded puzzle company with each design created by a female artist who gets a percentage of every sale. Each comes with puzzle glue to preserve it and hang it as art because you don't have enough of your kids' art on the walls. Puzzles have been connected to decreased anxiety, dementia, stress, and improved sleep and memory. Who knew? Get 10% off with code ZIBBY, all caps, Z-I-B-B-Y. Bethany Saltman is the author of Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment. She's also an award-winning editor and researcher. Her work can be seen in magazines like The New Yorker, New York Magazine, Atlantic Monthly, Parents, and many others. Bethany is a graduate of Antioch College, where she was one of the architects of the nation's first affirmative consent policy and went on to receive her MFA in poetry from Brooklyn College, where she studied with Allen Ginsberg. A longtime Zen student, Bethany is devoted to the fine art and game-changing effects of paying attention. She lives in a small town in the Catskills with her family. Welcome, Bethany. Thanks so much for coming on my show. Thanks for having me. You were so nice to send me not only your book, but an awesome baseball cap with Strange Situation on it, which I know now this is the second time we've done a virtual talk and I'm not wearing it, but I promise you I have been wearing it this summer and it's been reminding me of you all the time. (laughs) Awesome. I love that. So for listeners who have not read or who don't know much about Strange Situation, your book, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment, can you give a little synopsis of of what it's about? Sure. The book is a memoir woven in with the science of attachment. When my daughter Azalea was born, she's 14 years old now, I was confronted with some difficult feelings. I, I think like many of us thought that motherhood would wash over me like a blanket or, you know, some kind of comforting, you know, soothing experience that would wipe away the edgier aspects of my personality. And lo and behold, that did not happen. In fact, kind of the opposite occurred where I was stressed out, you know, worried about myself in relationship to this new motherhood business and ultimately worried about her because I didn't really, I didn't have problems bonding with her, so to speak. Um, I loved her. I adored her. I found her gorgeous, beautiful, fun, you know, adorable, all those like squishy feelings that a mother often has, a parent often has. But I also felt really stressed out and I wasn't always very good at containing my feelings, which is part of my, you know, makeup. So that scared me. And I knew enough to know that babies really need sensitive caregiving and I wasn't sure I was giving it. So at the time, I'm a writer, so I was writing. I was writing a column about being a Buddhist mother, which I am. So that gave me an opportunity to do a lot of research into parenthood, which I really considered, you know, humanhood. What does it mean to be a human being? And at that time, I came across a lot of conversation around attachment from a scientific point of view, and particularly this thing called the strange situation. And just the words strange situation felt so resonant to me. 
And so I started to explore that and I discovered that there is this whole world of science of the relationship between parents and babies. And that's when I got hooked and I, and I went on this 10 year journey to teach myself the science of attachment. I, I barely graduated from high school, um, <laughs> but I was really determined to learn this science. And so I did my best and that's what the book is about. It's about my journey into the science of attachment and what it taught me about myself as a mother and as a daughter and as a person. I would argue it's also about your coming to terms with your own upbringing and the relationships you had within your own family and how that affected everything going forward. There was so much in the book about the way in which you processed things at the time, the way in which you coped with things. There was a lot of... You know, there was talk of like your bullying at home and in middle school even, and some of the more kind of, you know, deviant behaviors you engaged in to cope with that. And anyway, I feel like it was also like a coming of age in a way into being a mother, not just, and the the science stuff was really interesting, of course, but I really felt like this was like a, I don't know, a deep dive into how you became the mother you were or something. I don't know. <laughs> Not that you needed oh, another that. synopsis, but <laughs> that's my two cents. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> There's a quote from the beginning. I hope you don't mind if I read. I had always feared I was a damaged person, the victim of an unloving and maybe even dangerous childhood, crippled by something I couldn't name. I believed I was broken, unable to truly give or receive love. It was no surprise I told myself that I was a terrible mother, especially since my own mother was so cold and rejecting. She and my dad threw me to the wolves, my two older brothers who never loved me. Then when I was 13, Azalea's age as I write this, my parents divorced and my dad moved across the country, which didn't bother me at all because I had always felt alone. Wow. First of all, so well written. Second of oh, all, what what an introduction to how you feel about yourself and like the sort of self-determination that you were going to fail as a mother no matter what. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was heavy. It was heavy. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and then later on, I'm sorry to be just like reading your words here, but I'll, I'll no. stop and let you talk after this, but they're just so good. When you're talking about your decision to write about this whole thing, which I really would like to talk to you about, you said, it had never before occurred to me to erase something I had written because my words had always been my periscope and to cross something out would have submerged me into darkness until I became a mother. Then I was writing as a prayer to save my life and my daughter's. That's how much I loved her. I was willing to risk facing a dark truth because I knew even then at the beginning of this journey that in order to save her, I had to save myself. So good. So good. Oh, Oh, I love hearing it from your feelings. It's, I, I feel it anew. It's nice. Thank you. So tell me about your decision to write this book and to even face everything in the past and write it down in general. Yeah. You know, I've been asked that a lot and I've written about how when people read the book or the manuscript, they would say to me, wow, you're so brave. And I thought, oh my God, <laughs> that scared me because I, it made me see how scary this is. And I was so in it that I felt like I had no choice. You know, it was one of those stories and people ask me a lot, you know, how do I know what I should write about or how do I stay on course? And I tell people what I told myself. I had to assume nobody was ever going to read this because I had to tell the truth. And the only way I could do it was to take the audience, including my daughter, out of my mind because this was a story I had no choice but to tell because my whole life depended on it. You know, one of the things that I've learned 
through my journey of into the science of attachment is something that I always had a strong feeling about. And that's that being honest with myself is pretty much all I have. And if I can't be honest with myself, then I don't stand a chance at being honest with anybody else. And it's not about, you know, some kind of unedited, you know, quote, honesty, like telling the quote, the truth. It's, it's a much deeper experience. You know, I knew that in order to be the mother that I wanted to be because I loved my daughter so much, I had no choice but to look at the, the dark recesses and the demons that I was carrying because, and the science has borne this out to be true. And so I, I, I began to really trust something. You know, it's, there's so many ironies in this whole experience. I began, because I didn't trust myself and, and, and as a mother and as a person ultimately, and I set out on this path to understand the science of how that works, how parental love functions, why it functions, how it came to be, and understanding this laboratory procedure, the strange situation in the process, I began to actually trust myself. What I had been feeling was true. I did need to take care of business. I did need to be held accountable. I did need to think about my past and I did need to do some healing. I was right. Ultimately, that was a sign of my security. That was a sign of the fact that I actually did have what I needed as a child, I think, and ultimately as a parent that, you know, I had these questions and I had the capacity to ask them. And I think I've passed that down to my daughter. It's, it's an interesting story. A lot of this really does have to do with perception and interpretation. I feel like people call this reparenting. Isn't that what it is? Like when you have to reparent yourself emotionally before you can be a parent to somebody else. But <laughs> Exactly. I mean, that helps. But, you know, I think that I did have what I needed from the beginning, but I didn't believe it. And I think that's true for so many of us. We're riddled with self-doubt. We have a lot of shame. We have a lot of concern about our abilities and our capacities. And we look back at our past and we see all kinds of good reasons to doubt ourselves. You know, we maybe didn't have the best childhood. We didn't have the perfect upbringing. But the fact of the matter is most of us have kind of a good enough experience, certainly good enough to come back to ourselves and do some of the work that we might need to do to be more available for our children. You had a scene in the beginning of the book where your father was coming in, you were in the bath and you you were like, you know, get mom, you know, you didn't want him in there. And then you have another chapter all about that later. And then you even were sort of questioning you know, why was I like that? Is it possible that I was abused? Like you had all these questions about your family. Do you feel like you came to some sort of resolution having written the book? Yeah, I do. I, I came to a resolution that I came from a pretty messed up family. <laughs> and, you know, I don't believe that my father abused me sexually. So that's a relief. But there was a lot of boundary violation for sure. I wasn't cherished the way that I cherish my daughter and that I wish that I had been cherished. And that's true. And I was given a lot of encouragement to be strong and I became very strong. I was given, um, I was left alone, which I think in this day and age is a gift that many parents would do well to give their children. You know, that's sort of the, the beauty of the benign neglect of the 1970s families, right? Like, you know, they didn't really know what was going on with me. And in a lot of ways, that was a gift. That was, that was a good thing. I was left alone to develop an internal life, which I'm grateful for. And I was supported when, when push came to shove, when there was a difficult situation, when I was sick, when I was really hurt, when I needed my mother, she was really there for me. And that's what this 
experience has taught me of writing this book and learning where those critical situations of attachment really are. When a child is under stress and reaches out to the parent, does the parent come to their own senses? Can they manage the stress of being in the presence of a stressed baby or, or child or teenager to be able to offer some kind of soothing? You know, we don't need that much. It's kind mm-hmm. of amazing how little we can go on and how that works. And that it's that quality of attention that just enough, you know, just tell the, the child it's okay and that you see them and that you love them and that, you know, you get it and they can move on and, and keep going. But when, when we don't receive the most basic care, the most basic attention, we keep asking for it and we keep clamoring for it. And that's what our attachment system is built to do. We are determined to feel felt. And if we don't get it, we're just going to keep looking. And that's how we, you know, that's how we lose our way. And how did you end up going from being Jewish to being Buddhist? (laughs) The old boo-boo process. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So I was raised Jewish and I was not given a bat mitzvah. My parents gave me a choice because I was a girl, which I resent, but you know, that's the way that they saw it. But I was never, I didn't really associate my spiritual, I didn't think of myself as a spiritual person. I didn't associate any of my questions or my concerns or my struggles with a religious or a spiritual path at all. It wasn't until I had a lot of emotional upheaval in my twenties with a really toxic relationship, a really powerful, that was a very powerful experience for me. And I really felt like I was on my knees. I I couldn't work. I was totally addicted to this person. It was very, very painful. And it was in this moment when I, I was, you know, near suicide, really, I just felt like I didn't know how to go on. And this voice in my head kind of led me to a Barnes and Noble on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and up the escalator. You know, it's one of those I'll never forget it moments and up to the self-help section. And I thought, oh my God, this is really it. Like I have hit rock (laughs) bottom. Me, you know, I, I really fancied myself a feminist, a poet. I, I never, an intellectual, I never in a million years thought I'd go to the self-help section for anything. And so I went up there and I, and I was faced with all these books. And then to my left, I saw this book peeking out on a on a shelf. And it was, this was you know so long ago, I'm dating myself that there wasn't even a Buddhist section. It was the Eastern thought section. And there was this book facing out and it was really pretty. And it was called nothing special living Zen by Charlotte Joko Beck. And the whole thing just like drew me. And I, and I went over to this book and sat down and started reading it. And I thought, this is it. This will, this will save me. This will help me. This will heal me. I, I will, this will help me understand who I am and why I am struggling so mightily right now. And then I never, I never thought that I would actually meditate or do anything remotely religious or spiritual, but I thought the words of having to really face yourself and sit in stillness that resonated for me. And I knew that that would help. And, you know, eventually I did end up going to a monastery and living at a monastery. In fact, I met my husband there. And so, yeah, so that's, that's how that happened. I'm still a hundred percent Jewish, but practice Zen. Wow. I feel like I I kind of laughed when you were on the escalator saying you would hit bottom by going to the self-help section, not because I hope, you know, that wasn't (laughs) because of the pain that you were in, but that your, your your view, the self-help was like the bottom of the barrel when in fact, self-help authors are also amazing and have like lots of, of <laughs> but it, no, oh but my gosh. I was no, so I know, young. but back in the day, especially then, I feel like it had a totally different 
kind of branding yes. than it does now, which is like very totally. mainstream. All the books were yes. lavender. <laughs> like yeah. a different font and, you know, it was like a whole thing. <laughs> yeah. And I just didn't associate myself in that way. I, I really identified as, as this like kind of bulldog, strong Antioch feminist, which I was. And, and so it was just a real identity crisis for me. And I'm glad well, I went I'm glad you it. got what you needed. I mean, that's like, this all just goes to the power of books, really, is like sometimes it's exactly what oh you need. God. And sometimes there's nothing better than, than the advice you can get or the perspective you can get. Or I mean, think about people out there who are going through right now what you're going through or like feeling like because of their childhoods, maybe they're not parenting the way they want or they want to be different or they need to revisit or I don't know. And now they have you as a guide. I don't know. It's very cool. It's like full circle, really, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Well, so back to your original question of, you know, why did I write this book? And, you know, how did I think about my daughter? And, and, you know, that question about the actual writing. And it was for that. I... I'm willing and I, and I stand by this, even though, you know, I've gotten certainly some pushback and some criticism, but I am so determined to help de-shame the process of feeling like you don't have what it Mm -hmm. takes for parents, because it is so important for us as people and for our kids, because we did bring them into this world, you know, and, and they deserve our best selves. And it's so available. You know, I mean, all we have to do is turn toward it. We don't have to buy anything. We don't have to do anything differently. I mean, you know, certainly we want to try to, you know, be kind and patient and all of that. And I work on that every single day and fail. But it's, it's what's going on on the inside of us. And that's what this work has taught me and really confirmed for me. You know, my internal experience of myself is what is going to really matter for my daughter. If I am, you know, trying to put on a smile and do the right thing and give her all these amazing experiences and, you know, feed her all the right food and make sure she's off of her screens and make sure she's exercising and doing, you know, SAT prep and, you know, all that stuff, which is fine. But on the inside, I'm seething or I'm depressed or I'm hating myself those experiences are only going to go so far because what our children really need and what they're queuing into is, is an attunement and is, is a delight. That's what Mary, that's Mary Ainsworth's word that can only come when we are able to delight in ourselves. That's just the way that works. And so it sounds sort of, you know, like new agey or, you know, back into the like lavender book, self-helpy world, but that's what the science is telling us. So I feel very affirmed by that. And, you know, the, the desire to meditate, the desire to become more mindful, the desire to, to take care of ourselves is worth it. And we're not being selfish. Totally. You're absolutely right. So what is coming next for you? You've written this book, you're in a better place yourself. What's coming next? Yeah. Oh gosh. I am trying to teach myself how to write a novel. Wow. How's that going? (laughs) It's so fun. It's so fun. I'm loving it. I'm taking master classes. I'm reading. I'm, you know, because I was so in this world for so long. This book took me 10 years and I couldn't really read fiction very well. I couldn't read non, much nonfiction either because I was, you know, I had to just stick with my, I had to try to listen to my own voice and it was difficult. Um, so now I feel like I'm so liberated and reading all kinds of stuff and trying to really learn the building blocks of narrative in a different way. You know, I certainly, there's a narrative in this book for sure, 
but how to sort of write a suspenseful book. I'm, I'm really having a blast. That's great. I don't always hear that it's such a blast from different authors. So that's great. I'm glad you're having fun because that's the whole point <laughs> is like, if you don't, you know, no one, has a, yeah. no one has a gun to your head to do it. So you might as well enjoy it. <laughs> well, and especially in during this time, you know, which is so yes. heavy, so hard. And, you know, I will also say that a lot of this attachment work is very relevant to what we're all going through right now, first with COVID and being in quarantine and, you know, all the feelings that come up around being with our family. Um, there's a lot to learn. And also with the, the pain of looking at cultural trauma yes. and how important it is that we do look deeply inside of ourselves and at all the details, all the feelings that arise in any circumstance, whoever we are, whatever kind of position we're in, looking at ourselves is the greatest gift to other people and taking care of ourselves, not in a you know, mani-pedi kind of way, although I love that too, but in a really taking ourselves seriously and, and not shying away from the trenches of our inner life. So I think that you know, I'm, I'm, I'm falling back a lot on what I've learned in the attachment work in this moment of reckoning, which is, you know, very, very welcome. Well, you've essentially just answered this, but do you have any other advice to aspiring authors having spent 10 years on this memoir? And yeah. what advice would you have? I would say, tell the story that you have no choice but to tell and, and figure out, spend some time cultivating that. You know, what is that story? Ask yourself those questions. And, and really stick to your guns. There's lots of time to get beta readers and to get editors and to try to sell it. But that, that you know, really important work of self-study, and it doesn't have to mean, it doesn't mean you have to write a book about yourself, but to learn to listen to yourself, because that's what writers do. They listen to themselves, even if it's about characters that have nothing to do with them. We have to, um, we write through our own senses. And so the the biggest challenge is becoming in touch with our voice that comes in through the senses. So that's, that would be my advice. And, and a sitting practice is always great. A meditation practice is like a portal into that. Even, you know, two minutes, five minutes of stillness and, and opening the senses is incredibly helpful and healing. And it puts you in such a good mood. <laughs> Love it. Well, thank you, Bethany. Thank you for this. Thanks for our, your Instagram live. I know we talked more then about, you know, what it's like to have brothers who aren't particularly nice to you and more about your parents. And so I just wanted to hear different stuff this time, but that was also should be part and parcel of this conversation. So thank you for both yeah, combined. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Zibby, for doing all the work that you do. I'm, I'm inspired by you and by your championing of books. And it's been a pleasure to get to know you and your work. So I, I thank you very oh, much. You too. <laughs> Thanks, Bethany. Right, yeah. Take care. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review this on iTunes. Tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much to Jiggy Puzzles for sponsoring today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Get 10% off with code Zibby at JiggyPuzzles.com. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com. Oh,